Thank you for tuning in once again to the Old Code Podcast. I, uh, I apologize for the fact that I did not put out an episode on Monday. I have been sick this entire week, and I did not have the mental capacity for getting an episode out. Uh, this is the 21st episode that I am putting out, and I am... This is, this is a bit of a touchy subject, because I don't want to speak poorly, but you know me, I've never shied away from super touchy subjects. Today I want to talk about femininity and masculinity. Now, I don't want to talk about the idea of what it is necessarily to be a woman. Uh, I am going to just flat out say that to be a woman is to be biologically female. There's no way around it. I think it is an aspect of delusion to believe that you can be anything than what you are. If you are a man and you believe yourself to be a woman, you should probably get some help. If you are a woman who believes you're a, a man, then you should also get some help. I believe that we are created what we are, and if we have a delusion or a belief that we are something that we are not, then that is contrary to reality. Going back to the classical transcendentals, truth is what it is. And so, really, I want to get down to what are the personality traits and what are the characteristics that more so define what it is to be feminine and what it is to be masculine. And I'd like to use A, biblical resources, in order to define what it is to be feminine and masculine, and I want to give some examples really from fiction in order to demonstrate what I'm talking about. So, giving a brief overview of the subject, I want to talk about what it is, the onus that we then bear when we are excellent in one area, which is to be strengthened in the other area in order to garner balance. And then ultimately, I want to give what that balance looks like in those fictional characters. And I am sure that there are historical figures that I could draw from, but ultimately, I think it's uh, fiction presents us with hyperbole or exaggerated images that we can then understand the base ideas from. So, really, I want to, first of all, go back to a created order. We're starting off with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so, the image of God, as initially created in a masculine image through Adam, is meant to name the animals. And so, the first thing we can understand of the masculine nature is that it is meant to categorize, it is meant to bring about order. Not that there was no order to begin with, God already had an order in mind, 
but the image of God working through the masculine nature was categorizing and creating order. His first job was to assign names slash categories to the animals. You can even see this in God himself when in Genesis 1 it talks about how the earth was formless and void. Uh, there's a there's an underlying idea of it was created a bit chaotic. And then order is slowly established through this. So you can see he separates the water from the dry land. He separates light from darkness. He creates living. I, I'll, I'll actually I'll get to that in a second. Uh, he is creating order out of this chaos and it, it's actually fascinating the the hebrew for formless and void it's tohu vabohu this is kind of an idiomatic phrase in hebrew it's like topsy-turvy it means it's a bit out of it, it is a bit out of order but it's it's an idiom in order to demonstrate that so that initial phase of creation is an assigning of order. He puts the birds in the sky for the sky. He creates fish for the sea. He creates land animals to, uh, to rule the land. And then he puts man to rule over creation. So this is a basic image of masculinity. Masculinity is an assigning of order. Uh, as a as an additional note, I think I might go into what it is to actually be toxically masculine or toxically feminine, as it were, because that's not a conversation we're having quite as much in the cultural lens. So, uh, the cre so man is put in the garden to cultivate the garden, to steward, to, to keep and to guard the garden, uh, but also to expand this image of order into the rest of creation. So you already have a garden and man is made to work that garden. Now initially, before the fall, before sin enters the equation, creation will be working alongside him. It will not be working against him, it will be working with him uh, so what you have for the picture of masculinity is not necessarily governance but it is discerning the true and the good and then applying the true and the good in an orderly fashion so man having an, in, an inherent understanding of what is true and good in the garden is then called to assign that truth and goodness, that order, and expand the bounds and expound the boundaries of that garden into the rest of creation. He's meant to be cultivating life. He's meant to be uh, creating a sense of beauty in it as he expands the true and the good in the rest of creation. Uh, we can also see how the fall affects that calling. So, like I said, I'm going to read from Genesis uh, 3, verses 
17 to 19, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of, cursed is the ground because of you. So first of all, I want to elaborate on this. There's a masculine uh, application first in God's, you shall not eat of it. This is God's imposition of natural order. He says, not only you have all of these trees that you may eat, but also this tree that you cannot eat. This is an assigning of what ought. This is goodness. Uh, so he says, this is good, this is not good. This is a masculine reflection of God's nature in assigning creative order. Then he goes on to say, like I said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, man's created, or God's creating man out of the ground again was an establishing of order, and part of the, the curse is an undoing of that ordering. So, where man was meant to establish order and create goodness and beauty from the ground out of which he was created, now the ground, and indeed all toiling for him, is going to be working against him. It's effectively not necessarily a losing battle, but a very difficult battle. Think Sisyphus rolling up, uh, rolling the ball up the hill only for it to roll down the other side. Um, furthermore, when it comes to the dust, him returning to the dust, again, this is an image of that undoing, even of, of an order that God has established. He created man out of the dust, and now he is returning to that dust. He is merging back with the creation, even the creation which strives against him. It's that image of there are things that man, there's nothing that man can ultimately control because he is being, first of all, strived against uh, in creation. And now that thing which has been striving against him is consuming him once more. So the image of masculinity that I'm drawing is he is meant to be an ordering creature, but the curse makes it so that he is being strived against by that which he is meant to order. And you can see this in the way we develop infrastructure. Infrastructure even uh, is constantly degrading. We are constantly having to repave the roads. We are constantly having to sow the seeds for next year's harvest um, instead of things producing as they are uh, we still need to be creating. Uh, we need to be planting every single harvest. For creative men, uh, ideas always run dry. Even ourselves, it is by the sweat of our brow that we must work. So I, uh, I think this is enough of an image of masculinity that we can then move on to femininity. So...
we get this image uh, from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God puts man in the garden and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so we first of all see that man ought to be a relational creature. But he's not a relational creature yet. And so he creates Eve, who is the fountain of all other relations. Uh, man is incapable of being a father without a woman, and therefore he cannot have that relational aspect. He's incapable of being a husband, and so without woman he can't be he cannot possess that relation. He cannot other, have other friends. He cannot have, have other masculine or male friends if not for a woman. He cannot have uh, he cannot have a romantic relationship apart from her being birthed or in this instance directly created by God. So apart from woman, man cannot fulfill a relational capacity. And in this, woman is created an inherently relational creature. She is meant to actualize potential um, in a distinct way. So man is actualizing potential in one way, while women are actualizing potential in another way. Um, so we see this more we also see this in the curse um we see again in genesis 3:16, i will surely multiply your pain and childbearing uh in pain you shall bring forth children uh your desire shall be for your husband uh and he shall govern you now i i take issue with the specific translation of childbearing because in the Hebrew, again, <clears throat> beg your pardon, the word childbearing is not simply in relation to the birthing of children, but it's anything related to the bringing forth of children. It is everything from the from the conception to child rearing and everything in between. So the curse that we see placed upon women being relational, like uh, woman being initially created in the image of a helpmeet. She is meant, to, she is twofold. She is relational and she is a nurturer. She is a helper and relation. And this is not to say that she is in any way inferior because she is meant to help. Uh, that is to say, uh, you could theoretically even say the same thing where man is inferior because without woman she or he is just a single man he can't do he can't create any more humans he just lives alone that so again i, th I believe the apostle paul even says uh that woman was created for man but every man has been created from woman so there's no ontological hierarchy there's no inferior and superior there is um there is a hierarchy of roles but there's no ontological hierarchy you can't say one is more important than the other again 
if you are to yeah. okay as an image um if you have a clock and this is this is not please don't take this image to the absolute logical extent because again images always break down so if you have an image of a clock uh and it is missing one gear and without that one gear it will simply not work that clock is fundamentally useless it cannot do what it is meant to do if not for that one gear once that one gear is put in place the whole picture comes alive and you can see this with any created thing if not for the one thing the thing is fundamentally useless so which one is more important a broken clock or the gear which makes it work you can't say one is more important and i think it's important to say that neither the masculine nor the feminine are actually either the broken clock or the gear what i'm talking about is a holistic image of the human nature in both instances the man can be considered the gear or the or the clock the woman can be considered the gear or the broken clock she needs the the thing to fulfill her nature and in the same way the man who is meant to teach and to create order needs the thing to complete his nature so again i want to do away with this idea that there's some in some manner an ontological hierarchy there is no made to be superior and made to be inferior now superiority and inferiority can be boiled down to the idea of one is put over the other and indeed woman is uh, the the wife is then meant to be under the and I, I want to clarify this the wife not woman the wife is meant to be subject to her husband women are not subject to men there is there is indeed a how do i phrase this there is a blanket onus that all men bear to all women in that the strong bear a call to those who are weaker and indeed there is a blanket onus that the weaker bear to the stronger uh we and this is this is not a controversial thing to say but men are made stronger than women and you can you can even see this proved in in the transgender discussion uh where you have those men who are honestly really really not that great when they are functioning in sports as a man but suddenly they transfer over and they say that they're a woman and they suddenly become the best in their field i believe leah thomas uh is an example of this you can even see this in uh serena williams where amongst her female competitors she is number one she is absolutely number one but if you have them playing if you have the woman playing against men 
so she's number one out of however many versus a man who is maybe top 100 but he's he's in the he's in the 80s they're still going to dominate so again there is an onus that all men bear to take care of those who are weaker than them uh, and this is a universal human aspect uh, mothers have an onus to their children they are weaker than them and they bear a distinct uh, calling to take care of them so again we have an image of that which is ordering which is the masculine and that which is relational and nurturing as woman is created to be not only relational but a helpmate for Adam a helper suitable is the term she is specifically suitable as a helper to the masculine image so when I dial this back um, women are not subject to men wives are subject to their husbands daughters are subject to their fathers as much as sons are subjected to their fathers and to their mothers um, clarification daughters subject to their mothers um, I don't I don't know why this is a controversial topic but uh, I think it needs to be said that women have no need to submit to a man who is not their husband father or pastor done deal uh, you, it's it's I, I do not see any any biblical or logical argumentation that a woman should be subject to a man uh, that is not any of those three relations whatsoever uh, so moving forward uh, I, the point that or one of the points that I'm getting at with this is the fact that it also goes to something I mentioned in the last episode on introversion and extroversion which by the way I did spot the fact that I misspelled extroversion I apologize for that uh, <clears throat> and it is not in any way a Freudian slip suggesting that I believe those who are extroverted are extra as it were the onus that you bear in having a nature which is more which is more pronounced in one area I beg your pardon I'm gonna have to take a drink <clears throat> I apologize <clears throat> sorry uh, like I said I'm still getting over something the onus that you bear when you have a nature which is more pronounced in one area or the other is to cultivate the area that you are weak in and so I want, I'll flesh this out through what is toxically masculine or toxically feminine so the difficulty arises the, the language of toxic masculinity I've heard that masculinity is toxic when it's not masculine enough I've but I, I find that to be <clears throat> I find that to be a lacking definition so masculinity and femininity are toxic when they 
lack an inherent counterbalancing of the opposite nature. So a man becomes toxically masculine when he lacks an inherent understanding of his relational and nurturing calling. And you see that ultimately actualized in a tyrant. It becomes tyrannical because the man is seeking to actualize his own will. He is seeking to establish his own order without due regard for those who he needs to be caring for. Uh, so he, when a man is so fixated on his own desires, his own will, his own his own premise that he loses sight of his relations and those whom he is called to fundamentally be serving. So you see this all the time in media and you see this with men and this ultimately usually actualizes itself through aggression. Uh, and I, I'll get into aggression a bit more in a future episode, but aggression and emotionality, or on aggression and emotionality, but aggression itself, anger, is an emotion that is very useful in the context of when justice is infringed upon. So, in toxic masculinity, actual toxic masculinity, when one is not paying regard to any real sense of justice, but to one's own understanding of justice, aggression tends to come out. So, you, again, you can think of the abuse of husband or father, we can think of the insecure man, uh, we can think of a lot of, like I said, the red pill or black pill community in uh, the previous episode on the rejection of the black pill or red pill. There's the idea that my self-worth is being infringed upon, and so I'm going to lash out. I'm going to lash out at those who I think have wronged me. So, again, in the red pill or black pill community, the... <laughs> Those who they think that has wronged them the most are women, and so they're going to lash out at all women. And you see the counterbalancing, or the counterbalancing effect against uh, radical third wave and second wave feminism, where they are assuming that it is women who are the problem instead of a cultural phenomenon, which is infecting women in the same way that second and third wave feminism were lashing out at men instead of the cultural phenomenon, which was a hyper masculinity, or a, a, a toxic masculinity, a masculinity which was not taking into account those who they needed to be taken care of. So that's, that's an image of what it is to be toxically masculine. Now toxic femininity, we, we, don't talk about nearly enough, but again, going back to that relational and nurturing nature, the relational and nurturing nature, when it becomes toxic, is the assumption that it's the overbearing mother. Uh, 
I would not recommend it as a television show to watch with your family, or I, I can't even necessarily recommend it as a television show to watch with a good conscience, but there is a, I believe it's called The Haunting of Hill House. It's a horror series on Netflix, and it is the best representation of toxic femininity that I have ever seen. But in it, there is a mother who create, who becomes fixated on her children never having to grow up to the point where she is effectively, um, in a manner of speaking, seduced by an evil malignant presence that convinces her that the best way to have her children never gr grow up is to kill them and see them become ghosts where they never do have to grow up. This is the overbearing matriarchal desire, the desire to see her own understanding of what it is to nurture and to have those relations never go away. Um, it's an unfortunate thing because, again, with you can even see this in... Uh, goodness, I'm forgetting the, the name um, of it. It is Critical Race Theory. There we go. Um, or, or Critical CRT Ideology. It is the idea, and even Marxism, I should say. Marxism is the idea that any hierarchy uh, is bad, uh, to quote Marx himself, uh, the entirety of history is summed up in class struggle, essentially. So Marxism's uh, CRT, these are fundamentally feminine ideologies because it's the idea to see people nurtured. It's the idea to see people uh, become better. It's the idea to see relations nurtured, uh, not only people nurtured, but relations nurtured to a toxic extent where there is now no longer any sense of hierarchy there's no longer any sense of order there is just pure relationality there is pure nurturing uh, and, and this is again toxic because it then begins to strip away the individual and leave only the relation for the sake of those who are imposing that, that nurturing. Again, when you have the mother or the wife who is convinced that they know absolutely best for the individual that they are in relation to, they are dragged down, or they, they drag those around them into the ultimate stagnation, which is their own inner world. A uh, couple uh, side notes. This is the, the this these two natures are fundamentally one of the reasons why you see a disproportionate number of men who end up with aggressive disorders and a disproportionate number of women who have anxiety, particularly social anxiety disorders, uh, because it is the man who is afflicted with the need to impose his will upon creation and the woman who with the desire to nurture and be relational 
So I want to go back to the onus to counterbalance. The man then is, and I've said onus like 40 times, I apologize for that. I just don't know a better word. The, an onus is when you owe something to someone else, essentially. So <laughs> I apologize for having said that like too many times. But the point that I'm getting at is a well-rounded out masculine nature is going to take into account the relational and nurturing calling. A well-rounded out feminine nature is going to take into account the or the natural ordering of things. She is going to she is going to recognize that her own understanding of what it is to be nurturing must be subject to something which is greater than herself. Uh, fundamental goodness, fundamental beauty. Um, I actually had a, a little... Uh, I had a thought, and I, I think it's worth noting, but the masculine nature is prone to the pursuit of truth and goodness. The feminine nature is prone to the pursuit of goodness and beauty. But, and this is a blanket statement. It does not... It is not an end-all, be-all statement. So these two natures, when they come together, they are able to pursue truth, goodness, and beauty in a true, good, and beautiful way. So uh, I think I've fleshed out this, uh, this premise well enough to move on to, like I said, those exaggerated examples that we see in fiction. So... I think an amazing example of a healthily balanced individual in fiction, uh, as far as the masculine role is, and I will preach this until the cows come home, is both the book and the movie depiction of Aragorn from The Lord of the Rings. If you can pick one archetype, one fictional archetype from any source of fiction to emulate as a man. It is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. And I'm going to draw on both the introverted and the extroverted episode as well. But you cannot pin down whether or not Aragorn is... You cannot say that he is necessarily... Um, you, you, you absolutely cannot say that he is toxically masculine, but what, I, what I'm trying to say is you can't pin down whether or not he's an introvert or, an, or extroverted because he is so well-balanced. Uh, like I said, he's very contemplative. You usually see him... <laughs> you, you can see him in his spare time reciting or reading poetry, singing songs... Uh, at, at his very own coronation, he sings a song for his people. Um, and I think that, uh, like, something which is traditionally viewed as somewhat feminine, you know, the pursuit of, of beauty, in a sense, he fully actualizes that when he is con uh, contemplative he's contemplative when he needs to give a speech 
for the sake of those whom he is leading and guiding. He's calling people to arms. He's calling people out of fear. But he is ultimately subject to the desire to see people do well. And he is ultimately subject to something which is greater than himself. Uh, so in the masculine nature, you see him governing and leading well. In the relational and nurturing nature, uh, nature which is a bit more feminine, you see him as a healer. You see him knowing full well what herbs to use, the, you know, the ethylis or the kingsfoil plant, in order to heal. But you also see the moment that Boromir is lie, laying dying, he's there to comfort him. He is there to be vulnerable with him. And that vulnerability is then reciprocated uh, in his in Boromir's statement of, you are my captain, my king. It's a reciprocal vulnerability. It's a statement of, I recognize that you are my superior. And in doing so, there is a nurtured relationship. You also see him extending massive amounts of grace in the recognition that he, he sees that Boromir messed up, but he immediately extends grace to him. He comforts him and says, you know, I will not let our, pe our people fall or our, or our city fall. So this is a, this, you see this as a radical vulnerability. You see this radical relationality in the person of Aragorn. And you can see that he is comfortable enough in his masculine nature to extend that relationality, to be nurturing, all of the above. But you also see him in his masculine nature correcting the failings and the flaws of someone like uh, Theoden when he's calling him to action to come to the to uh, to Gondor's aid. So if there is an amazing image of masculinity in contemporary media it is Aragorn and surprisingly I didn't I was searching I was racking my brain as to an exaggerated and healthy image of and balanced image of femininity because uh, I don't want to just assume that a healthy f female is the one who is just quiet and subservient and mouseish but if you look in fiction at least in movie media it's strange because the healthiest image that i've been able to find of an exaggerated feminine character is actually wonder woman in the i don't know 2015 2016 whenever it came out that that particular movie uh and you see a woman who is incredibly strong you see her excelling in certain areas that even her male counterparts are not nearly as strong as her but in all of the ways that modern media tends to depict women at when they need to be strong she's not bossing her male counterparts 
around. She's not dealing with their weakness or their their failings through her strength. She deals with her the villains and the bad guys with her strength. But in those failings and when she sees her masculine counterparts fall short, she does not deal with them in her strength. She deals with them in her grace and in her nurturing attributes. She, in her relational aspect, she is incredibly gentle and kind. And so you see this woman who is incredibly well balanced for the bad guys. She is, she's fierce. She is a mama bear. She is a lioness. But for the good guys, for those who are on her team, she is dealing with them in so much gentleness and grace and nurturing them that it is nothing but feminine. And that, to me, is a very healthy, balanced image of what it is to be, again, an exaggerated woman. She does not ever repel femininity. In fact, she embraces femininity. Uh, and you can even see this. Uh, there's a... Again, I'm going to be a little nerdy. In her Amazonian culture on Themyscira, there is an outright rejection of anything male. But in her willingness to recognize that there is a man who is coming to their culture and that he is offering something, he's offering news, he's offering... He, she doesn't outrightly reject that. In her acceptance of the masculine nature, she is actually pushing back on what can be seen as a toxically feminine aspect of an outright rejection of anything masculine. And the irony being that in the outright rejection of anything masculine, the woman actually embraces a sense of toxic masculinity in herself. So in the willingness to hear this man out, she is actually embracing a more feminine nature than those women who outrightly reject masculinity so what are we to do with all this information first of all i want to give you these categories as self-evaluatory self tools and tools to view things in a cultural lens my goodness somebody has decided to use a weed whacker outside so, first of all, I want you to evaluate yourself. Uh, how are you, as a man, leading and guiding? Are you leading and guiding as a tyrant? Or are you leading and guiding as a good king who is well aware of the subjects and the, those who are put under you to be taken care of? For the feminine, or the, the, the women in my audience, are you nurturing out of a sense of, I know best, I know exactly what needs to be done? Or are you nurturing out of a sense of, I care for this person, and I am interested in the good and the beauty for them, 
Are you interested in embracing that gentle and kind nature? Furthermore, again, the cultural lens, when you are evaluating a character who is a strong female character or, or a, um, I would, I would say that in most of our cultural depictions of what is now a good man, you have the image of either the toxically masculine, uh, who doesn't care, or the beta male who is just subject to whatever anybody else is doing. Um, I'd love to do an episode on how the Rings of Power and the Lord of the Rings actually contrast each other in the, in that premise. Uh, but you move forward into the... I talk about the feminine now, and that is in understanding that in the cultural lens when we are evaluating a strong or a good female character, is she just a man with breasts? Or, goodness, I apologize for the background noise. Is she just a man with breasts? Or is she in fact, or is she just basically a placeholder? Or is she a well-rounded feminine character who has a will of her own, but understands that she has a role and a responsibility to those whom she is meant to be gentle and kind and gracious toward. She is able to have her own will and be gracious and gentle and nurturing in those whom she is relational I think that's all I have for you today. Again, I apologize for my voice. I apologize for the background noise. I'm currently doing this at home but I wanted to be able to get this episode out for you guys. Thank you for bearing with me. This is a little bit longer of an episode, but I figure uh, it's okay because I didn't put out a Monday episode, so consider this a twofer. Uh, in any case, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope this episode helps you to have some evaluatory and evaluation of where you are at. I hope that you are doing well. Uh, please... If you like this episode, let me know what you think. Either drop a comment somewhere on Instagram or YouTube. I, actually, I don't have an Instagram account. I just recently posted about this uh, on my Instagram, but otherwise. I am your host, The Professor. If you like this episode, share it with a friend, and I will catch you next time. <laughs>